Hello and welcome back to the weekly Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and with me this week as always is Simon Elliott, the Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We're going to kick off this week, uh, Simon, with a quick word about the market as always, which has been quite strong. It has been strong, despite um, some slightly iffy economic news to say nothing of the President of the United States' bout of coronavirus. But essentially, the market is up. The all-share will probably end up the week uh, north of 2%. And the investment company sector has done uh, even better, probably nearer to 3 3.5%. In terms of the sector average discount, we've seen that narrow. It's come from 6 to probably about 5 5.3%. So again, all going well at the moment. If we look back over the year as a whole, we could say that the investment trust sector has uh, finally broken slightly clear of its sort of 1% or 2% uh, up on the year. What, what are we at at the moment and how does that compare to the old share if we, if we are making that comparison? Yeah, so the FTSE old share is still down, probably down about 18% or so for the year, where, as you correctly say, the uh, investment company sector is probably at the heady heights of about 4 or 5% up on the year. So quite a significant degree of outperformance. Right. We might come back and talk about that uh, later on when we look at who's done well and who's done less well this week in that context. But let's also now talk about the corporate activity, because as we pointed out last week, there are no fewer than uh, five IPOs in the works, so to speak. Uh, And we've heard the results of a couple of them this week. And uh, it's a mixed bag. It is a mixed bag. And I think it just goes to show that it is actually a very difficult business uh, launching a new investment company. On the positive side, we've heard that Home REIT has raised £241 million, which is a decent size uh, IPO in the investment company space. Um, It was very proud to announce it's actually the largest IPO of the year, though, to be fair, it's only the second that we've seen. But it's still a very decent result. Just to remind people, they're going to look to invest in high quality accommodation for homeless people, and that will have a yield of about 5.5p. So a decent result there. In contrast, unfortunately, Telworth British Recovery and Growth, they were looking to raise between 100 and 150 million. That IPO has been pulled, unfortunately, due to insufficient demand. And again, just to the point, you know, I'm sure they got very good, strong interest in that. But unless you can build a decent book of shareholders at launch, then uh, unfortunately, uh, you do not pass go. Right. So it's a mixture. You need a mixture of... uh... Obviously, these days you hope to get quite strong support from uh, private shareholders, as we know, but it's still a case that you need to get money from one or two at least, or maybe more of the bigger, more institutional type investors to get it off the ground. Would that be a fair summary? Absolutely. I mean, when you build a a book of demand for a new IPO, you're looking for a, a couple of cornerstone investors, invariably institutional shareholders, or maybe some of the larger wealth managers who are prepared to put down some significant amounts of capital to get the thing going. Uh, and then you can build on, on top of that and kind of diversify out the register. But ideally, you know, you look to attract institutional shareholders, wealth managers, retail investors, but uh, often in some of the more specialist mandates, it might have a, a narrower appeal. But yes, IPOs are a tricky business. There's a reason why there aren't that many of them in any given year. This year has been particularly difficult. It was interesting that Telworth pitched their offering in terms of, there was a slight sort of touch of altruism about it. They were trying to suggest that uh, British companies would need help as they come out of the pandemic, and that there were some good companies that needed help, and they could therefore be backed, and also some growth opportunities in the UK market on the basis that the market has been quite cheap. But of course, the home REIT was also sort of pitched in an altruistic way to help the homeless, and that seems to have gone down quite well. Do you think this is really about altruism there, or is it more about the 
simple fundamentals, if you like, of the value of the proposition, and in the case of the home REIT, who the counterparties are. All those aspects are incredibly important, but I think what's undoubtedly been a real theme over the last year or two is this idea of responsible capitalism, the idea that capital should be deployed to do good. And it's something that we're seeing more and more investment houses talk about. Clearly, home REIT, it's it's quite an obvious outcome. That's not to say that returns are not important as well, be it through, through dividends or a total return. But yes, it really is a growing theme. A lot of talk about ESG factors in terms of the way that people uh, invest. And I think this idea of sustainable investment is something that we will see in future IPOs and even in in existing investment companies looking to move their mandates on to to really play to that theme. And in sort of mundane terms, the home REIT, I mean, you said that's targeting a kind of 5% yield. And I think they said a 7% total return or something of that order. How does that compare to the other trusts that are in the social housing arena, which have also there are quite a few now, and, and they've been uh, trading quite well, have they not? That's right. So we've got Civitas Social Housing trading around NAV, yielding on a historical basis just over 5%. Triple Point Social Housing, again, that's just under 5%. So that seems to be the range. Uh, and clearly, Home Reach will, will sit alongside those two existing funds. Okay, so we've heard some more news away from the IPO front corporate activity type news. There's been an update from Perpetual Income and Growth, that's a ticker PLI, which I'm sure listeners will recall, is proposing to change its manager. This was one of the old Invesco trusts that have been heavily out of favour. What's the story there? At the end of July, Perpetual Income and Growth announced uh, their intention to merge with Murray Income. uh, And this week we had an update on that merger. So effective from this week, Aberdeen Standard Investments, who are responsible for Murray Income, are now also responsible for the portfolio of Perpetual Income and Growth. And the idea here is that they will oversee a transition of the portfolio to bring it in line with Murray Income. So as and when we get to a a stage where the merger is possible, and bear in mind both sets of shareholders have yet to vote on this, then the merger will be uh, relatively painless and, and be done in an efficient manner. So it's fair to say that this has taken a, a number of months to kind of get to this point. I mean, there are some, uh, you know, mergers are not entirely straightforward. And I think it's worth noting that both uh, investment trusts have loan notes. So in this particular instance, you have to discuss with the holders of their loan notes and, and get permission and all that kind of stuff. So there is a, a process that uh, has to be gone through. But they said right from the outset of this that this deal should be completed in, in the fourth quarter of the year. And that's kind of what it feels like. In the next month or two, we should be there. Yes, indeed. It's something that certainly I've had personal experience of as well. These things, however quickly you make a decision, they do take time to implement because of all the complications that you've mentioned and the fact that you have to go through a process which is fully consult shareholders and so on, involves circulars and everything else, which is all as it should be. But it does take time to complete the transition. In the meantime, what's been happening to the, the rating of perpetual income and growth? And how does that compare now with the, the many others that are in the UK equity income sector? Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, the UK, as we've discussed before, has been out of favour and progressively so this year. Perpetual income and growth had been struggling for a period of time and it had been derated. That discount is now starting to narrow a little bit. It's probably about 8 or 9% now, so it's starting to creep in. Murray Income, the investment trust into which it will merge, that's trading on about a 5% discount. So that's at a tighter level. So after averaging in the last year, probably about 12, 13%, 
Perpetual income growth is on about a 9% discount at the moment. Okay, so that's one to watch. Obviously, eventually when the two merge, they're going to uh, just be one trust. But in the meantime, would you expect the rating, the discount on perpetual income growth to converge on the rating of Murray income? Or does it not work like that? What are the dynamics of that kind of thing in the in the interim period? In theory, yes, because ultimately it will become the same portfolio and then become the same shares as and when the merger is approved by the respective shareholders. So yes, you would expect the ratings to move together. Uh, and the fact that we're now going to see the transition of perpetual income and growth's portfolio, in other words, it will start to perform in the same way as Murray Income does, which has not been the case up until now. So you'd expect those ratings to move closer and closer together. And I guess also, I mean, shareholders have to be prepared for the fact that the yield on Murray Income is uh, is lower than uh, the yield on perpetual income and growth, and that therefore they would probably expect when the portfolio is transitioned, they will only be getting the yield that the Murray Income is offering. It's absolutely correct. One of the other things to note, actually, is that Perpetual Income and Growth has declared a special dividend of 13p per share. And, and what's happened here is uh, ahead of the merger, it will look to pay out its, its revenue reserves. So unfortunately, when two investment trusts come together, the revenue reserves can't be carried over from one into the other. So what happens in this instance is that the, the special dividend will pay out substantially all of the undistributed uh, revenue reserves. So that will be um, occurring in November. Okay, well, I'm glad we've cleared that one up. What else can we say on the corporate front? Well, there's been an announcement from an investment trust called Jupiter US Smaller Companies, where there is a manager change forthcoming. That's right. So uh, it was announced this week that Robert Siddles, who has managed Jupiter US Smaller Companies since 2001, is looking to retire in April next year. So we've had a 20-year stint on this particular investment trust and actually his uh, investment career or he's been investing US equities uh, for I think something like 35 years so quite a long period of time. Um, The board of that investment trust company have said that they will look to review options for its future management and they will make uh, an announcement in due course. But an interesting one, um, very very experienced, a veteran even uh, investment manager. When we caught up with him towards the end of last year We did discuss with him plans for his future and possible retirement. And I think at that stage, he was quite happy to go on and on, to use a a term. But uh, he did say that, uh, you know, his personal view that Jupiter would be proactive in identifying a replacement as and when he decided to have enough. But uh, it's fair to say that it is about him. He is a a stock selector. It's not a team-based approach. So I think the board will uh, have to think about that one quite carefully. Yes, and the U.S. smaller companies, I mean, it's a separate sector in the AIC classification, but there's only uh, two companies in it. And the other one is a J.P. Morgan Investment Trust. I think it's fair to say that the J.P. Morgan uh, Trust has a rather better performance track record. Yes, certainly over the last five years, the J.P. Morgan Fund has outperformed the Jupiter equivalent, and that'd be true over probably this year or certainly the last six months. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that Robert Siddle's investment approach has a value bias to it. And as we've discussed on on previous podcasts, that's been a very difficult approach to pursue in recent times. But, you know, over the the, the long term, and I mean, you could go back, well, since he started managing this one in 2001, I think the the, the return is not too far off 400%. And that is an outperformance of the wider US market. So he certainly delivered some very strong long term uh, performance. Yes, I think that's very interesting because obviously we know from uh, experience that uh, it's very difficult to outperform in the US market, or at least UK fund managers have traditionally found that quite difficult. 
and uh, the smaller companies sector is some people say that you're more likely to be able to outperform in that space because it's less uh, well researched and so on than the the main US equity market but uh, there haven't been many trusts that have tried to do this so it is a niche and if you were sitting on the board of that one would you be thinking about changing the mandate or would you be thinking about sticking with it? I always think that smaller companies in general are a really interesting uh, part of the marketplace and in addition to that using an investment trust to gain access given that it's a captive pool of uh, capital makes an awful lot of sense. I think if you can select a good stock picker because ultimately that's what smaller companies comes down to um, then I think the, re- the results can be notable. I mean clearly we can see that in the UK small cap market space there are a number of very long-standing fund managers there who've delivered excellent returns and uh, though as you rightly observed there are, there are far far fewer US smaller company uh, investment trusts one would suspect that that's still a very interesting part of the marketplace. You know if you can find a manager who can tap into the inefficiencies that will undoubtedly exist in the US market um, away from those large cap names that everyone's familiar with, then I think you can make a case for some very strong long-term returns. I think the other point to make about this particular trust is that uh, it was only taken over by Jupiter a few years ago, three or four years ago from memory. Robert Sittles was working elsewhere before then and the board was happy to come with him across to the new manager. So the question I guess will be for the board whether or not they feel that uh, Jupiter has the kind of expertise in that area. That would be a relevant factor they'd have to take into account, I suspect. No, you're correct. Robert Siddles was previously at uh, FNC Asset Management, which is now, of course, BMO, and he joined Jupiter in, in, in 2014. So I, I suspect Jupiter will be very, very keen to, to hold on to this mandate. I mean, we've discussed before that their stable of investment trust has shrunk over recent years, and if they can bring in a suitable replacement for Robert, then it gives them an opportunity to get back onto the front foot with this one. Indeed. Okay, so we have to, I'm afraid, go back to the shootout in the OK Corral very briefly, which is the ongoing saga, and indeed it is becoming a saga, uh, of Gavelli Value Plus Plus. As I said before, I'm very glad I'm not really a shareholder in this one. And I'm actually quite glad I'm not on the board either, because it's turning into quite a tricky situation. Uh, So I don't know if you could uh, just update us on the latest twist in this saga. More than happy to. So basically, this investment company failed its continuation vote back in July. Uh, 66% voted against continuation. Over 90% of the shareholder base uh, voted. So, uh, you know, nothing untoward about that result. It was very clear that shareholders wanted to bring an end to this particular company. And to be fair, the board of directors recommended that they vote against continuation. Unfortunately, the largest shareholder is an outfit called Associated Capital Group, which has links to the investment manager. It owns about 27, 28% of the share capital. So, you know, not insubstantial. And they have communicated, they've written to the board that they are not happy with uh, the liquidation. And in fact, they've indicated that there might be possible litigation. Now, why is this important? Uh, is because in order to move to a voluntary liquidation, you need 75% of the shares voted uh, in favour. Now, clearly, Associated Capital Group can effectively block that. So that puts the board in a hugely difficult position. Uh, I dare say the majority of shareholders will be quite annoyed with this turn of events. Uh, And the board are considering options over the next week or so. They're going to look at what the best way forward. I suspect their lawyers and advisors are going to be very busy and they're talking about maybe a liquidation, a tender offer, a dividend. Let's hope sense prevails. But it's it's certainly a bit of a messy situation. 
So for the moment, they're just racking up costs and uh, unable to uh, implement what the majority of shareholders want, which uh, perhaps might suggest there's a slight kind of risk here for investment trusts if other managers ever got into this position. You want to be very careful. It's very hard to see, though, what associated capital group are going to get out of this, other than a lot of ill will. But I dare say they have their reasons. Uh, but it's not entirely clear to me what they are. I would agree. I, I mean, just to make the point, I've been covering investment companies for the best part of 20 years. I have never seen a situation quite like this. I mean, boards have been known on odd occasion to fall out with their investment managers. But, you know, in the kind of three-way battle between shareholders, boards and investment managers, I've never quite seen uh, a situation like this. So, as I mentioned, let's hope sense prevails and, and it's all resolved as amicably as possible. Let's hope so. OK, a very quick one on Bearing Emerging Europe. That's a BEE or B. It's worth mentioning this one just because they have one of these uh, tender offers as part of their, uh, if you like, the toolkit, which they are trying to keep their shareholders happy. But uh, I think there's some news on this year's proposed tender offer. Perhaps you can tell us about that. That's right. So they have a mechanism whereby if their average discount over a preceding four-year period were to uh, be wider than a 12, then it would trigger a 25% tender and equally if their performance was not greater than 100 basis points or 1% over their benchmark, then that would also trigger. Well, they've obviously got the, the calculators out and they've been very busy because their average discount came in at 11.96. So therefore, they missed triggering their tender offer by 0.04%. So just got away with it. And I think this lends itself to the argument that perhaps this kind of mechanism is not massively efficient. I think there are some people, and ourselves included, have kind of criticised it as being um, not the best way forward. I think to some institutional shareholders who like to kind of play, whether the, you know, the games over these kind of tender mechanisms, there's an attractiveness. But for retail investors and wealth managers, it probably doesn't suit particularly. So they basically squeak through on both the measures, both the criteria, average discount and total return. I suppose what they would be worried about, again, if you're the board of this company, this trust is not only in a very specialist area in emerging markets in Europe, but it's also quite small. It's got 85 million in assets or thereabouts, something like that. So if they had had to do a tender, they, would, they might effectively have been going out of business. Is that right? Yes. I mean, you lose up to 25% of your assets on your market cap of actually the market cap's a little bit lower at 74 million, then you start to become uh, very small. And it's fair to say this is a specialist mandate. It's probably off a lot of people's radars already. Yes, indeed. So we can perhaps leave that to its own devices. Okay, let's quickly move on then to some more fundraising. We've heard about the IPOs, but we haven't really caught up with what's been happening on the secondary issuance front, which, as we know, has been a very productive source. If IPOs are difficult, raising money through secondary issuance has become a lot easier, and a lot of trusts have been taking advantage of that. And uh, we've got some updates on that score uh, this week. That's right. So Marion Chrysalis, they were looking to raise £50 million, and that was to invest in a company called You and Mrs. Jones. Uh, that actually came in at £95 million, so it was oversubscribed, and so they could increase the, the, the range of what they were trying to raise there. So that was a good result for them. Equally, supermarket income REIT, they were looking to raise £150 billion. That was increased to £200 million, and that was an oversubscribed placing as well, so a positive result. And Aquila European Renewables Income, which was one of the newer renewable funds that are in the marketplace, that raised um, about €128 million. Euros. So again, um, they raised a little bit of money back in March, €35 million. So this is a decent size placing for them. 
uh, and they've got a pipeline of six assets lined up that they will deploy the new capital. So that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it seems that uh, established investment trusts are finding it easier to raise more money than the, the 100 million or so that, as we talked about last week, is the normal minimum size for an IPO. So if you're an established trust and you're, if you like, in the market already, these are quite substantial sums that these, uh, these trusts are raising. Do we have a feel of what the total amount raised this year through uh, secondary issuances? The vast majority of money raised this year um, is, is through secondary. As discussed, there's only been two IPAs. So placings and, and actually regular TAP issuance as well. We've seen over £2 billion raised through investment trust companies trading on premium ratings, regularly issuing shares to the marketplace, uh, names such as uh, Scottish Mortgage, Investment Trust, Worldwide Healthcare and Allianz Technology have raised uh, quite substantial amounts of capital just through that regular issuance. But I think the total number off the top of my head is something like £4 billion across the whole sector in the first nine months of the year. And that will represent about a third down of what we saw for the comparable period last year. But given, as discussed, that the IPO market has been particularly poor, that's not too bad a result. Certainly not. One little point I thought it might just be worth raising for those who are not entirely familiar with the investment trust market and all its many splendid peculiarities and so on. Uh, but in terms of where these the shares of supermarket income REIT are listed... What is the difference between where supermarket income REIT is listed and trade and uh, where a lot of other investment trusts are listed and trade? Um, so the supermarket income REIT is actually traded on the specialist funds segment. And this has been around for a few years now. And we find one or two investment trust companies more of the more specialist nature uh, are found in that segment of the marketplace. And there's various reasons why they might be there. It might be the concentration of their portfolios or the nature of their shareholder base. Most investment companies are, are traded on what's called the main market, and there are various advantages that come with that, including inclusion within uh, indices and the ability for retail investors uh, to access those shares. So it's it's often a feature of newer investment companies that maybe haven't had time to diversify their shareholder base or build out their portfolio. Does it make a difference from a point of view if you're a shareholder or an investor in, in, in the real world? Does it make much difference? Do you need to worry about whether it's in that segment or not? So for retail investors, I think there are restrictions on accessing investment companies on the SFS. Um, I think it will depend on the platforms on which you use and your status within those platforms. But yes, it might have some, some implications there. OK, so let's move on then to talk about some results. We can maybe race through one or two of these. There have been quite a few this week, but not as many as uh, some weeks, it's fair to say. Let's kick off then with a well-known trust, Bailey Gifford Japan, which has been a fantastic long-term performer. And I'm happy to say I've been a shareholder for a while, so I am always follow their results with interest. What's been the story there? So Bailey Gifford Japan had its annual results out for the year to the end of August. Uh, a decent set of results. Their NAV total return was up 7% in that period versus a small decline for the wider Japanese market. So in common with a lot of the Bailey Gifford uh, investment trust is a real preference for growth orientated companies and that's really the story here secular growth stocks are the core part of the portfolio probably representing just over half of the whole portfolio and they've got a third of the of the portfolio in internet related businesses whereas automation related businesses are also a key theme as well uh, interesting they brought the gearing down um, to four percent at the end of august it has over its lifetime been more highly geared than that but as you say, it has a very, very uh, strong long-term track record managed by Matthew Breton, Praveen Kumar, uh, and they've done a very good job for shareholders over the long term. 
And I think it's fair to say that Bailey Gifford Japan is one of the sort of two big heavyweights in the Japanese sector, along again with J.P. Morgan. Both of them got very good uh, long-term records. But the sector is still trading at a discount. How does Bailey Gifford Japan rate compared to the other trusts in the sector? Yeah, so Bailey Gifford Japan is invariably one of the highest rated Japanese specialist investment trusts. It's probably on about a 2% discount at the moment, just slightly tighter than its 3% average discount over the last 12 months. That compares with the average of the wider sector of probably about 6%. Um, the JP Morgan fund that you mentioned, that's on a 6% discount. Uh, and some of the smaller ones are on, on wider discounts as well. But Japan has, uh, has had a good run in the last uh, month or two, actually. So, for instance, just over the last month, I mean, you're seeing names. I mean, probably the best performer is in the Japanese small cap space, the Belly Gifford Shin Nippon, which is actually up 14% in the last month in AV terms. Yeah, that's an impressive thing. And we might think about why that is another time. Let's move on quickly. We've got Genesis Emerging Markets. Again, a very large uh, investment trust in the emerging markets uh, sector. What's been their story this year? So um, they have their annual results out to the end of June, a reasonable set of results in as much as they slightly underperformed. Their NEV total return was down 1%, as I say, slight underperformance of the wider uh, MSCI emerging. The story there was that they were underweight some of the markets that uh, came through the pandemic quite well, such as uh, China and South Korea and Taiwan. I think possibly the other interesting element here, although it's not, frankly, a kind of dividend story here, is that they've actually brought their their dividend down. It's been reduced about 11%, and that reflects the the, the fall in the underlying income as a result, obviously, of the impact of the coronavirus as well. Uh, Again, it's one of these emerging markets or Asian uh, investment trusts that has this 25% tender offer if it doesn't outperform over a period of time. In this case, it's the five years to the end of June next year. And actually, interestingly enough, they are running behind that level at the moment. Uh, They're up about 50% versus the index up 55%. So uh, if that continues in a similar vein, then there will be a a tender offer next year. But they will clearly be hoping to start performing. Okay, let's move on then to Pacific Assets. That's PAC, not one we've talked about before, I don't think, from memory. Even though we've been going on these podcasts for about six months, I don't recall talking about Pacific Assets before, but no doubt some keen listener will remind me if I'm wrong about that. Uh, what is Pacific Assets? Uh, who's the manager? And uh, what have they uh, just announced? I think Pacific Assets, uh, the people who had the problems with the with the auditors, actually. I think we've probably talked about the, the um, KPMG uh, and what Gosh, happened there. It was only last week, wasn't it, or the week before? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I got a bit confused, perhaps with the other one, whatever that one is. I can't remember what it is. Anyway, never mind. Uh, they put out some results, uh, and what have they had to say, Simon? This week we heard about their interim results for the six months to the end of July. Uh, they had an NAV total return of 2%, and that compared with near 9% for the uh, MSCI All Countries Asia X Japan Index. Interestingly enough, they compared themselves against the CPI plus 6% per annum index, I think is something, again, we talked about recently. And even on that basis, they, they underperformed in the period. They have a focus on high-quality companies. It's managed by a chap called David Gate of Stewart Investors. And it, you know, it's fair to say that they've struggled a little bit in recent times. They've got a very high weighting to India. About 35% of the portfolio is invested there. Uh, really little direct exposure to, to China. Uh, and as we know, China has been the kind of key driver of Asian returns now for a while. But they have a focus on sustainability, going back to what we were talking about uh, earlier, 
and they really led the way in this. They, they've been one of the early adopters of this idea of um, the importance of governance and, and ESG. And there was a period of time when that really helped them out, that helped their performance tremendously. But they've had a, a quieter period of late. Next in line for reporting this week was uh, TR European Growth Trust, TRG. have also had their results out. And uh, the story there is uh, is what, Simon? So they have their annual results out to the end of June. NAV had a return of 3%, and that represented an outperformance. Their benchmark return was 0.3%. So this investment trust is managed by a gentleman called Ollie Beckett of Janus Henderson, and he's been running this fund for about nine years or so. So very much focus on uh, European smaller companies, a very diversified portfolio, about 130 or so holdings. So it's all about stock picking, really. And always some interesting names and ideas in that particular portfolio. Probably a bit of a bias to more value cyclical companies. Um, So as and when we do see an uptick in the European economy, that should benefit this investment trust. So, But I suspect given the period that we've had, uh, the difficulty in particular in the first half of this year, they'll be quite pleased with that set of results. Yes, again, this is another relatively small sector. They're in the uh, smaller companies segment, I think. Is that right? Which again is a relatively small sector, not as small as the US one. How do they stand inside that particular sector? How do they rank on the most important measures? So in terms of size, they've got a market cap of more than 500 million. The JP Morgan Fund is probably nearer to 700 million, so they'll be second to them. In terms of um, the performance, most of the the names in this space actually have have got pretty decent set of performance numbers. Uh, The Montanara European Smaller Companies is is the leading performer over the last five years. And then the JP Morgan and uh, TR European Growth are kind of fighting it out for, for second place. TR European Growth currently winning in NAV terms over the last five years. OK, thank you for that. A quick mention of a couple of specialist investment trusts who've had also had results out. Let's start with ICG Enterprise. As it happens, I think you've had a good call with the management team recently with in that case, uh, can you tell us the story there and what uh, what did you pick up from talking to them? Yep. So this is uh, in the, the private equity space. Um, ICG Enterprise also used to be known as Graphite, a Graphite Enterprise back in the day. Uh, they had interim results out for the six months to the end of July. And I think it's fair to say back in kind of March, April time, we're all quite fearful for what might happen to some of these private equity names. The reality in NAV terms, at least, has been that they've all seemed to navigate quite difficult conditions very well. So their NAV total return was down just 1% in that six-month period. Uh, and that compares, obviously, with the market down near to about 18%. The share price total return is actually down 17%. So we have seen a derating. The discount has widened out. But actually, um, many of the, of the facets of the results were pretty positive. The realisation activity, although lower, still continues. So they're still seeing some decent uplifts. Um, they move some of their portfolio uh, around. And really, the portfolio is focused on more defensive growth stories. The thing that differentiates ICG Enterprise from some of the other private equity names, so some of uh, what we call kind of direct private equity uh, and some of fund of funds, this is effectively a, a hybrid. So just over half the portfolio uh, is invested in third party funds. So they've got 36 uh, underlying private equity managers. And then 44% is what they deem to be high conviction investments. So that's co-investments or through ICG funds or secondary investments. So these are all where they've directly influenced kind of where the capital has gone. As I say, a decent set of results. The discount has uh, narrowed on the back of those results, uh, but it's still probably on about 20, 21% at the moment. Just on that point about the different ways private equity uh, trusts invest, uh, is it possible to draw any sort of generalizations about whether the fund of funds have done better than the 
uh, trust that only do direct investing, or is it a bit of a mixed bag on on both counts? Is that something one can safely rationalise about? Yeah, it's a good question. So with the, the direct investments, so a good example of that would be an HG Capital Trust. What you tend to find is you'll have a lot more stock-specific risk, i.e. there'll be a higher degree of concentration in the underlying portfolio. So if you look down the top 10 names of HG Capital, for instance, that will account for a large part of the NAV. Conversely, if you look at a fund of funds uh, and Pantheon or Harbourvest are probably the two most obvious examples, Standard Life as well in that space, they're very, very diversified underlying portfolios, hundreds of underlying companies, if not thousands. So if one or two were not to work out, invariably, you won't really see that or feel that with the NAV. Conversely, on some of the direct names, it is very stock specific, a very holding specific. So that's the kind of difference. In terms of the returns that we've seen, it's probably fair to say that in the direct space, the returns have been stronger uh, over the last five years, both in NAV and share price returns. But, uh, you know, potentially there is a bit more volatility. So there's been quite a lot of rationalization in this space. So particularly on the direct side, the names that remain invariably being the stronger of the names. The, the, the fund of funds, they have outperformed the wider equity markets over the last five or 10 years. But uh, you, you get less kind of jumpy uplifts on the back of realizations for those vehicles. Right. So that's useful to know. OK, one more quickly, which is JP Morgan Multi-Asset Trust, M-A-T-E or MATE, which is a, a curious animal in a way. It's in the flexible sector. And it's an area where you would have thought that JP Morgan, with all its uh, global resources, would be well placed to uh, to perform. But it hasn't done quite as well as some of its peers, I'm afraid it's fair to say. Yeah, it had its uh, interim results out to the end of August. It had an NAV total return down 5% in that period. The reasons for its underperformance or downperformance was its developed market equity exposure. The thing to note with this one is that it actually pays a dividend, which not all the investment trusts in the flexible investment sector does. So it's yielding on a historical basis just short of 5%. So that's the differentiator between that and say its its sister fund, the JP Morgan Global Core Real Assets Fund, which is trading on quite a significant premium and, and is actually uh, quite a bit larger as well. So the multi-asset trust is also trading at the discount, is, is, is what you're saying, is right? unlike its, uh, its sister trust. That's correct. Yeah, it is arguably a little bit of an oddity, though they are quite different portfolios. You've got the uh, the JP Morgan Multi-Asset Trust on a 13% discount, whereas the JP Morgan Global Core Real Assets Fund is probably on about 16, 17% premium. So quite a difference in the, in the ratings. And they're doing different things. And of course, the, the flexible investment sector does include some very large and uh, well-supported big names. Uh, so it is a quite a competitive field. There they are. Quite a few of them do slightly different things we're talking about. It includes, you know, well-known trusts like uh, RAT Capital and uh, Capital Gearing and Personal Assets and so on. Finally, we just need to talk about a couple of property trusts this week. Let's have a look at uh, PRS REIT, uh, which has put out its full year results. Perhaps you can tell us what they do. What does PRS stand for in the first place uh, and how have they been performing? So this is a uh, property fund that uh, looks to invest in uh, new build private rental communities uh, around conurbation. So it's basically properties for, for rental. It's not social housing. Uh, it buys homes under development and it had its annual results out to the end of June. And in that period, its NAV per share was down slightly by about 1% or so, but they are continuing to build their uh, property portfolio out. So in that period, 
Uh, they had over 900 new rental homes uh, added, and so that takes them to over 2,000, nearly 2,100 completed homes. And they've got um, a, quite a significant pipeline of new homes as well at various stages of delivery process. So this is a portfolio that's been built out, and despite the impact of the coronavirus in terms of completing homes, I think in the three months to the end of September this year, they managed to add uh, 552 new homes to their portfolio. So it's a portfolio that uh, seems to be growing all the time. Indeed. That's in a separate subsector, as you said. It's UK residential property, of which there are six components, six trusts. And finally, Simon, in terms of results, let's talk about uh, Target Healthcare REIT, another specialist property company. Uh, What's the story there? So Target Healthcare REIT had its annual results out to the end of June. Their NEV was actually up just slightly, 0.6%, but the like-for-like portfolio valuation growth was actually nearer to about 3%. So again, they're continuing to acquire uh, new assets. So this is obviously in the healthcare sector, uh, which has probably not been a bad place at all to be. Uh, And they're continuing their progressive dividend policy as well. So for the financial year 2020, it was increased by 1.5%. And they're looking to increase again by 0.6% for their next financial year. In terms of the rent collection, which is obviously a very important aspect of the property story at the moment, they collected 95% of the uh, rent due in uh, March and June quarter days as well. So just looking at their sort of track record, as you say, their dividend yield is somewhere in the region of 6%, something like that on a historic basis anyway. And obviously that's not going to be cut, unlike some other trusts. And according to the AIC figures, they've made a share price total return of about 21% over the last five years, which probably computes to about uh, 3% a year as well. So uh, they've been getting a target return of somewhere in the region of 10%, which is kind of not too bad, I guess, for this kind of uh, trust. Yeah, and for many people, obviously, the yield is a very important part of the story. Their share price is around about 104 at the moment. So, you know, that will have gone up since this investment company has launched. Uh, but yes, it's, it's on the total return element, the dividend is the key part. Absolutely. And it compares to the PRS REIT we mentioned is on a yield of about 5% or so. Thank you very much, Simon, for all that detailed information as always. Let's finally just have a quick look at the movers and shakers, so to speak. You mentioned a couple that have done well in the last week and month. So perhaps you might just have a quick recap on the most significant movers over, say, the last week, first of all. And then we might have a look at the month and perhaps look back at the year again, like we did a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, so we mentioned uh, ICG Enterprise uh, having their results out this week, uh, and they are one of the best performers on the week, up nearly 13% or so over the last five working days. A few of the UK names have done quite well as well over this period. So we've talked about Temple Bar, obviously following that change of uh, investment manager. Uh, It's been a very difficult year for Temple Bar, but actually they've now started to perform a little bit. Uh, And some of the, uh, the small cap names as well, the JP Morgan Smaller Companies Fund and the BlackRock Smaller Companies, both up around about 10%. Mercantile Investment Trust as well, in the same stable as the JP Morgan Smaller Companies Fund, uh, also doing well. In contrast, it's been a tougher week. And again, in terms of those that have struggled, it's it's a bit of a mixed basket, to be perfectly honest, in terms of some of the more specialist funds that have had some specific issues. A KKV Secured Loan Fund, uh, which has had uh, issues over some of its valuations, uh, continues to struggle. One of the interesting ones is the BlackRock Income and Growth. It's a smaller fund that's really uh, been derated over the last week or so. And again, aircraft leasing, we've talked about that a number of times, not the place to be this year, sadly, and they continue to struggle. 
Yeah, so it tends to be the specialist names that when things sort of do change, obviously because of liquidity as well as the fact they're not as widely followed, maybe they tend to be the ones who dominate, if you like, the top 10 or top 20 of the poor performers. Is there anything worth mentioning in terms of discount changes? Can we talk about those? Those are always interesting. We mentioned BlackRock income and growth. That's uh, derated quite a lot over the last week. That's obviously contributed to its uh, poor share price performance. Any other names in there strike you as interesting where the discount has moved significantly or, or relatively significantly? So we talked about the JP Morgan uh, multi-asset fund. Uh, that's uh, seen its discount widen out a little bit. BlackRock Energy uh, and Resources Income, probably trading on a mid-teens discount now. It's moved from 10 or 11% about a week or so ago. So a couple of the BlackRock names have, have just suffered a little bit of a derating recently. Um, also, Aberforth Split Level Income, I think that's one that we've discussed before. That's a kind of geared UK smaller companies play. It's had a tougher year, it's fair to say. And that's seen its discount move out to about a 23% level at the moment. Well, it's interesting the smaller companies, the UK smaller companies making a, a, a recovery. It's interesting given that the UK is obviously very out of favour as a market, but it does seem to be the great some renewed interest in the smaller companies, notwithstanding the fact that we're coming up to the Brexit deadline and notwithstanding all the political hoo-ha over what's happening with the coronavirus and, and uh, restrictions there too, which might you might think have an impact on the economy, depending how severe they are when they when the next phase comes in. But even so, that uh, seems to be an interesting straw in the wind. And uh, there does seem to be some return of risk appetite looking at the overall performance of the investment trust sector relative to the market as a whole. It's been another interesting week. Simon, so look forward to speaking again next week. Thanks again for your time and wisdom this week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.